Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and we'll be talking about trends in the wine industry today. Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I am your host, Kim Simone. I'm here with my partner in wine crime, Mark Lindsay. And every week we speak to you about current trends and topics in the wine industry. How are you today, Mark? Hi, Kim. Always great to talk wine. Indeed. So we've got a article that came to us from the BBC that we want to talk about today. And it's an opinion piece talking about the concept of terroir. And for those of you who are familiar with sort of wine jargon, terroir is this idea that place has a flavor and that it's not just the soils that make up the place, but it's the soil and the sunshine and the climate and elevation and all of these things that come together that make places unique for either growing grapes for making wine or other things like cheese and olive oil and other food products. Yeah, Kim, so we always talk in events and classes about this terroir term, but we never talk about the scientific evidence or behind this. So you being the scientific uh, explorer for wine, this article talked about some of the science behind the geology and the soil, how it really does affect the wine. Or doesn't affect the wine. Um, And that's really the the stance that this article is taking is that maybe terroir is a myth and that it really doesn't have anything to do with the soil and you really can't taste the soil through the wine. So I think what is first of all, important to understand is that for some areas that have been making wine for a long, long time, and we're talking about mostly places in Europe, this sense of place is what is most important to the winemaker. The philosophy is more about, hey, where we make the wine is more important than what we make the wine out of. So in a lot of other places, newer wine growing areas, we tend to see wines named after the grape that they're made out of. But in places like France and Italy and Spain, we do see more this emphasis on where is the place? And so the big question here is, does that really matter? Do different places have particular flavors and does it come down to the soil? And this whole concept really started in Burgundy in the Middle Ages, where there were all of these wine growing areas that were controlled by the church. And they had a lot of time on their hands and a lot of monks who planted grapes and made wine and determined, hey, this place is the best location for growing these grapes for making wine. It's just a little bit better than this area. And it tastes just a little bit different than this other vineyard over here. So that's really where we get the start of this concept, but it it is still very valid today in winemaking circles. I always love when we talk about the history in France and how the monks really saved a lot of the vineyards because they documented a lot of things. When when things weren't going well, they were still growing wine and documenting what they were doing. And one of the things they were saying here was they actually tasted soil differences to find out, did it affect certain wines certain (laughs) ways? And when we have done classes in the past, Kim, we've seen these slides, especially in the Burgundy region, where the small vineyards from two feet away will have totally different soils, different color soils, and they really do produce different wines. Yeah, the wines do taste different. I mean, they're subtle differences, so it's not necessarily something that if you are just a beginner wine drinker or wine taster that you'd be able to have these two side by side or one a week from the next and be able to tell the difference between the two of them. But for people who are experienced in these things, they really can tell the difference. And they were saying there's 14 basic elements 
that you need for the vine to grow scientifically. And they were they were talking about uh, the microbiology in the vineyard, this and that. And I wasn't really caring about that. I don't want to say caring. Well, see, that part was, I kind of care yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> I figured that. I figured that. You know, one of the things I want to ask you, Kim, is have you ever, I've experienced this. I don't know if you have, but when you taste things and they tell you, okay, this is uh, Cabernet grown on this soil and this is Cabernet grown on this soil. Do you taste the difference? I don't really think I can. Honestly, I and I'm not sure if the makeup, like the actual physical makeup of the soil has as much of an impact on the final taste of the wine as all those other factors, the sunshine, the water retention, the climate, and that now there is this new research into, well, maybe the microbiology of the soil is what's really important. You know, if there are specific microorganisms that are in that soil, is that impacting the vine? Is that impacting the take up of certain nutrients into the plant? which then gets translated into the fruit and therefore becomes wine or these other factors. So for me, it's less like, okay, all of this is grown on limestone. Therefore, it's going to have this limestone-y kind of flavor to it versus this is grown on clay. It's going to have a clay-y flavor. I think it comes down more to, towards, okay, clay retains a lot of water. So therefore, grapes that function better in soil that retains a lot of water are going to do better than in places that have better drainage and different grapes work better in that type of soil. So that's that's kind of my take so on it. So because you don't taste the differences a lot, do you think it's a myth? More terroir is a myth based on that? No. Because it sounded to me that's I don't, kind no. of the direction you go. It's not so much that I think that terroir is a myth. It's that I think that the makeup of the soil might not be as important as certain people think it is. Because when I think of terroir, I don't just think of, oh, this is sandy soil, this is limestone soil, this is clay soil. I think of it as all those other factors as well and not just what is the dirt like. Yeah, I think I'm kind of on the same page as you because I think if someone presents you two of the same varietals and you did not know they were in different soils, you would have to first taste and say, oh yeah, they're different. And then if they tell you, yeah, because this one is on limestone, this one is on clay, say, then you say, oh yeah, okay, that must be why it tastes different. But when you tell me they're different right away, I think in my head I'm thinking, yeah, okay, now I taste the difference. Okay, so you're, you're looking told. for a difference because yeah. you've been told that they're different. Correct. And that's the only way I think I would detect it. So similar to you, if you told me it was different regions, I'd say, oh yeah, that makes sense because mm-hmm. they're from different regions. But I would like to not be told. I mean, I've had it where I've tasted wine that was, say, on volcanic soil and I've not known. And I've said, geez, this tastes a little different than I'm used uh-huh. to. And they say, okay, it's volcanic. Oh, so now I understand. And now you're like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that must be what I'm tasting. Now I understand volcanic soil. So I think, okay, yeah, terroir definitely makes a difference. Yeah. So, and I feel like from my own personal experience, there are certain places that I can always pick out a certain flavor that's associated with that place. So like, I feel like Chilean wine has a very unique, distinctive flavor that I can always pick out. And I can't really put my finger on it, but I can almost always, if I'm tasting something that's from Chile and I don't know that it's Chile, I'll taste it. I'll be like, hmm, I think this is Chilean. And I, there's just something about it. But what I'm saying is I don't know if that something about it is related to the soil or if it's related to all these other factors. It may very well be that it's the soil, but at this point, it's been very difficult for scientists to be able to test the validity of, yes, you know, soil influences the taste of a wine to an extent that we can can test for it and that people can taste the differences. So I hope that in the future, there will be more research into this because it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the differences could be just because the grape variety grows different because the climate is different. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily based
based on just soil. So right. that's a good example. And now you had talked in the past about when you were in New York that you had certain flavors that were different, maybe like a petrol thing going on at Riesling. Was right. the, were they relating that to soil? Not necessarily. The thing with the petrol and the Riesling, there were some questions about, is it based more on the thinning of the plant earlier in the season, how much sunshine it gets? Mm. So they didn't relate it to soil differences? Not really. Okay. No, so not really. It had more to do with, with other grape growing practices. Well, that's interesting because you it also goes against, the, I mean, it's also a myth here. Right. Absolutely. Right? Because so. often uh, people will associate that petrol flavor in Riesling with, oh, this must be from Germany because a lot of German Rieslings have this flavor profile. And so then the assumption is because all these German Rieslings have this flavor profile, therefore this flavor is coming from something special having to do with the soil in Germany. So yeah, that's kind of a big question mark too, because in some places I do get that flavor out of Riesling from other places like Washington State or New Zealand. So very, uh, yeah, very interesting. And jury's kind of out on this one. So like we said, this is just, this is one person's opinion, but a lot of different factors that go into the final flavor of the wine. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to listen to more of our shows, please go to iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about a blog we found called Wine Gourd that was talking about keeping the family wine business in the family is often very hard. And Kim, I, I hear this quite often and, and I, I can also relate to it as far as retailing, but what are your impressions or your ideas about wineries that are family owned and keeping it in the family? Well, I think like he says in this article, you know, it this isn't something that is unique to the wine industry. The idea of having a family business and then passing that business down to a family member, whether it be a niece or a nephew or a child or a grandchild is really difficult. And, and he gave some stats that it's that 75% of family businesses don't actually survive the transition to the next generation. And like he said, that's not specific to wine, but I think that wineries have a little bit of a harder time because it is really such a niche business. You know, you can't be guaranteed that somebody in your family is going to have either the desire or the skills really to continue on what you have started for the business. So this article is specific to Australia and New Zealand. That's where the author lives, but it does seem that it it has some points that do make sense for us here in the U.S. as well. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a worldwide impact. And you had mentioned 75% of the businesses don't pass to the second generation. And then they said only 1% go to the third generation. So I have heard stories where the, like the California family wineries right now, I mean, they started in, say, the 70s, right? Early, Mm -hmm. late 70s, 70s, early 80s. And the next generation for them, they might not have interest in the wine business. So what do they do? And then, and then most of them just build up the brand. And when it's time to retire, their only way to retire is to sell the brand to a corporation. Right. So yep. that seems to be more popular in California. And we've been seeing that a lot through the 90s and the 2000s as these original founders of, of some of these wineries became successful and then had to make a decision about what was going to happen with the business. At some point, they got on the radar of one of these big guys who, who came along 
along and just is, you know, interested in, in buying the brand and then promoting that brand. And then the original family doesn't have anything else to do with that wine any longer. Yeah, and you have to be careful because the the families that sell to the brands, the brands like to keep you thinking that the family is still involved. Mm-hmm. So they keep the name. They may keep the tasting room. So you're going to, you know, such and such family winery. You're looking out, you're seeing vineyards and everything else. And you're drinking the wine, but it's no longer associated with that family really in any way other than a brand. So but even the idea of a family business, you know, it, this can be a little bit, not I want to say a misnomer, but a little difficult in some situations because what he mentions in this article is the case of Yellowtail, which is a gigantic brand, but technically family owned, is right? family yeah. owned. Yeah. There's this Casella family, uh, which technically is the owner of Yellowtail. And yet Yellowtail is this massive, massive worldwide brand. So, you know, that kind of puts a little bit of a spin on it. And then you think, well, is it good because it's a family business? Does it being a corporate structured ownership make it bad wine? You know, there are all these like little things when it comes to wine that sometimes you need to step back and think about it a little bit more because what at the end of the day is of value to you? Is it a value to you to support, you know, a small business? And I think that that's really the difference is small business versus big business as opposed to family owned versus having a different kind of corporate structure. So something like Yellowtail, yeah, it's a family brand, but it's like a gajillion million cases made every year. That's a great point because I often associate that when a lot of times as a retailer, I'll say, yeah, we're family owned. But then people say, yeah, well, Walmart is family owned too. So that's the same kind of comparison that there are huge family owned corporations. But, you know, I, when I think family owned winery, I'm thinking, you know, the family, the the dad, the son, they're they're involved and small tasting rooms. That's my idea. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're saying they're going away and and over time, it's probably something that will, then then new people will kick in. Right. And And then new businesses will start and it's it's always ongoing. There are always new people starting new businesses. And I know from some of our conversations that you've had that you would rather support a little guy and be able to put money in that little guy's pocket by supporting their brand or supporting their winery as opposed to one of some of these big corporations. So you as a consumer need to figure out how you want to spend your dollar. And is it just what the wine tastes like in the bottle? Or are you going to use your dollars in a in a way to support some other businesses and have these other factors come into play in your wine buying decisions? Yeah, it's support. And it's also understanding the product. I, I you know, you want to know who's behind it. So then I give you the option. Do you want to support this because it's a big brand that you support the brand or you want to support the family. So, I mean, people have to kind of have a little education and keep updated on what's going on in the wide world because a lot of people, I think they're still supporting certain people when they sold their brand right. years ago. So I feel we have to tell them, you know, that's no longer, do you, do you taste a difference? Maybe not, but your money's going to a different right. place. Now. And that's where the knowledge comes in, in understanding and knowing how to read a wine label and figuring out, is this really small business? Are there people that have been working on this winery for years and have their hands on the grapes and in the production process? Or is it more going to support some large corporation? They did mention a few things about Italy in this article, which I thought was interesting because I had heard historically way back in Italy, they had problem with family wineries because when say like the industrial revolution hit, a lot of people in the farms left to go to these cities right. because they, they wanted better work. And so they left the family and the, the wineries suffered. But then they mentioned about Antonori in this article and the Antonori winery 
in uh, Italy is now in its 26th generation family owned. And then I was thinking, well, I thought Antonori just sold to St. Michelle, right? I mean, it's a big corporation, but oh. the family... Now, here's an instance where Antonori is a family-run business in Italy, but it's owned by a corporation in the United States, basically. Oh, so, okay. But the family's still running it. So families in the wine world, they're out there. They, I think they're getting hotter and hotter to find and do research who is families are what behind what product. But like you said, Kim, earlier, there are huge family corporations that you also should be aware of. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. We wanted to tackle a few of the wine myths that seem to be floating around uh, in our in our industry. And these are, these are actually questions that I get fairly frequently when I do some of my wine tastings. And there are a lot of sort of half-truths out there, but fun stuff to talk about. So we've got a great list here that winesearcher.com came up with. And well, the first one was that no, people did not stop drinking Merlot when the Pinot Noir boom of uh, it was around 2005 happened. So there are still some grape varieties that far and away are the most popular for American wine drinkers. And Merlot is right up there. I like these articles with the myths because we get them all the time. We see them all the time, but there's always different things in them. So, mm-hmm. And a lot of them things, like you said, Kim, we touch on and starting right out with nobody drinking Merlot and it, it was a big sideways movie thing where they said I'm not drinking any Merlot <laughs> and at that time the sales of Merlot went really down and Pinot Noir kicked in and now the last few years I've seen people going more towards a Merlot and I think it might be like a safe wine when people are looking at a yeah, wine. Yeah that's exactly what I was thinking it's like it's a it's a nice safe bet and I think it's because it's a known quantity. People generally understand what you're talking about when you say would you like a glass of Merlot. It's the same thing with Chardonnay. You say Chardonnay people kind of have an idea. They know what it's all about. It's like, hey, this is cheddar. It's like, yeah, cheddar cheese. I know what cheddar's all about. I feel like Chardonnay and Merlot are kind of that way. People get them. They understand them. I agree. I agree. Second one is that vintage is a big deal. And in some places, in some cases, vintage does matter, but it usually matters less than you think it does. So the vintage date on, the, on a bottle of wine is the year in which the grapes were harvested. And in some parts of the world... Vintage matters a whole lot because there's a lot of variability from one year to the next in the weather. And in other places, it doesn't matter a whole lot at all. Some places like California, where it's pretty much hot and sunny every single year. So some places like Italy, like certain areas of France, sometimes in New Zealand, you know, you have very variable weather from from year to year. Those are the places that you want to pay attention to what was a good vintage and what wasn't a good vintage. And I like how they said this myth, vintage the vintage, could also be compared to, is it a commercial wine vintage versus a small farm vintage, which we touched about earlier? Absolutely. Big difference in the quality, I I believe. Right. So some of these bigger commercial brands, their point in their winemaking, or one of their points in their winemaking, is to make a more consistent product from year to year because they have a brand brand that they're supporting. They have a brand that they are producing that consumers are loyal to that brand and pretty much want it to taste the same all the time. It's kind of the Coca-Cola of wine. Whereas some other small producers are more comfortable producing a wine every year that might have slight differences and are actually quite proud of that and stand behind, you know, yes, this is a, it's a natural product. It's an agricultural product. It 
is going to taste different from time to time. So that really is a different philosophy, I think, from some of the really big brands that are producing a more commercial product versus some of these smaller producers. The next uh, item, Kim, that they talked about, and they, I like also the article was wine myths, facts or fiction. <laughs> so I can't, we're going back and forth yeah. kind of what we think about them. The next one, wines that are rated 100 points are rare. And they gave a, a stat like one year wine advocate rated one wine 100 points. The next year they rated like 93 po- uh, wines 100 points. So it, it's not very common. Uh, actually, I think they were saying the opposite, that it used to be far less common for there to be 100 point wine. Yeah, it went the scores. other way. You're right. Yeah. It, one year was, was 93 or 70 and then it went down to one, correct? Is that what you're saying? No, Reverse? I'm saying that like say in 19, I don't know, 89, there was only one 100 point wine. And then as the years went by, there got to be more and more and more and more. So now we're at a point where a particular publication might give, I don't know, 50 100 point scores yeah, every single that. year. You totally read that different? different. Oh, that's yeah. how I read it. Now it's a challenge to find out who's... No. Mm, I honestly, go back honestly read it the other way. I read it that it was lower. Uh, maybe it's And I read it that you know we have based. this idea that it's like, oh, whoa, 100 point wine. And they're saying, actually, it's not that rare that there so what, are a fair number of 100 point what scores out there. What do you think based on your, that do you see a lot of 100 point rated wines? I honestly don't pay attention to scores because I don't think that they tell you all that much about them. I think they tell you a lot about the palate of the taster, but I don't find that they are particularly useful for the everyday wine consumer. And that is who I am concerned with. Yeah, I agree. I, I just, I mean, I look at a lot of publications. I can't recall seeing a lot. And usually your email would get flooded if a distributor had one. Mm, so point. I don't know. But I guess that's something we should research more if it's going one way or the other. All right. We can look into that one we'll a little bit more, folks. On air controversy. There we go. All right. Next. Next. <laughs> um, and this ties back to something we talked about a little while ago in that they're saying the producer matters more than the terroir. That if you are looking for a good wine, it makes more sense to research who are the good producers than where are the good places. And my little spin on this one is that producer will give you quality, but region uh, or terroir will give you style. So find a particular type of wine that you like and then experiment with producers that produce wines like that or in that area. That's great. We just talked about terroir. And like you said, Kim, it's you kind of have to look at what, a, what do people know or what do people recognize? And I think people recognize the producer or the brand more than it's from this region. And that's what the, the terroir should give you. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree that it doesn't really matter as much as other things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's more a matter of, okay, so say you're tasting through a whole bunch of Italian wines. And you determine that, okay, you like Chianti and you like Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. Okay, now you have identified styles of wine that you like. Now you can dig a little bit deeper into different producers and find better producers that you like. And that that will give you a whole bunch of wines that have a flavor profile that you enjoy drinking. And now it's up to you to find like a real favorite or some really good producers um, that will give you good quality wines. The next wine myth, fact, or fiction wasn't really, I don't know, a myth or a fact or fiction, but they were comparing a master sommelier versus a master of wine. To me, this is basically a master of wine is more, to me, retail maybe, and a sommelier, a master somme is probably more restaurant-based position. Yeah, I think so that's I a know, good way to break them down. What do you think they were trying to say is true or not true about this? I mean, I, I think that different? they were trying to say that, yes, that they were different. Um, 
um, but also something that I run into, the word sommelier or sommelier, as some people pronounce it, is a word that people know. You see that term and people like, oh, you know, that means a wine expert. But it's not the only word that means a wine expert. So I get asked all the time, like as soon as I say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a wine educator, the f- <laughs> half the time, the next words out of somebody's mouth will be, are you a sommelier? And I'll be, Ugh. and then I have to explain that psalms generally are folks with an interest or an experience in wine service. So meaning restaurant service. And I don't have that experience because my background is retail and sales and education. So I might be just as knowledgeable as someone who is a sommelier, but I'm not technically one because I'm not a restaurant background person. So I think the reason that they brought this up, the difference between masters of wine and master sommeliers is because there is a difference and you can't necessarily only use the word sommelier to in reference to a wine expert, that there are other people out there who might not have that designation, but are just as smart and just as knowledgeable when it comes to wine. And that's where the master of wine program comes in. You know, I kind of think of the masters of wine as like the uber geeks of wine in the wine world. You know, it's it's the pinnacle of wine education. People study years and years and years, and there's only a few hundred of them in the world. And they are, like you said, a little more likely to have a retail background or some other sort of background that's not restaurant related. I liked how you started because I was excited that you were going to start saying sommelier is kind of an abused or misused <laughs> term, but you went another direction, but I, st- I still agree. I don't think it's abused. I think it's well, I it's a, a term that people understand and have latched onto, and therefore it's the only one that they know that yeah. associates with I agree wine. with that, but I think people will then in turn think because they've worked in a restaurant, they can use that term oh, because gotcha. people understand it to right. give them more credit or Throw clout. around the word correct, and be correct. like, hey, so I'm a psalm. That's where I was kind of mm-hmm. going with it, and you went another direction. <laughs> that's why we do the show together. That's right. So what was the next, Kim? Not all Rieslings are sweet. This is a wine fact. This is another question that I get. Stylistically, you can make Riesling in any style that you want. You can make it super dry. You can make it really desserty sweet. But a lot of what we are familiar with as consumers is slightly sweet Riesling. And I know we've talked about this topic a lot. And the reason for that is because it comes from Germany. And and because Germany has traditionally been a rather cold growing place for grapes, the final wines usually had a little bit of sugar left over in them just to make them drinkable. So because this was how Riesling was traditionally made, this is the style that continues to be made, which is what people understand when they think about Riesling. But it doesn't have to be that way. There's nothing about the grape Riesling that means that it has to be made in a sweet style. So there might be a lot of semi-sweet or sweet Rieslings out there on the market, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every Riesling is going to be or has to be sweet. I thought this topic fell perfect into the article about, you know, myth and Mm -hmm. the wine. Absolutely. And the trend is has been people going more dry Riesling and they came out with that little uh, graph they put on the bottles I now. I love that on yes, the back of the label. To, so you know if it's dry or sweet. But now when people are actually asking me for sweet wines, they're moving away from the Riesling. They're going to the Moscatos. They're going mm-hmm. to other not Riesling anymore. So I can see this playing well into what this article was all about. That makes a nice segue into the next wine myth was another fact that a lot of red blood 
blends have some residual sugar left in them. And people don't often think about red wines as being somewhat sweet. But we need to remember that humans really like sugar. Like we really do. We might say that we like dry wine, but sometimes a wine that just has a little bit of sugar left in it is a whole lot more appealing and delicious than something that is super dry, especially to wine drinkers who might not have a whole heck of a lot of experience drinking wine. So a lot of beginner wine drinkers will start with something that's a little bit sweet and then move to drier wines as their palates get a little bit more mature and experienced. But there's a whole category of red blends, especially out of California now, that do have a fair bit of sugar left in them. And people don't really understand or know that. Yeah, so this myth was reds are dry. And we've talked about this in the past a lot, Came about blends are trending more sweet styles. So what I think the unfortunate thing about this is the people that start out drinking red wines might start drinking sweet and think they're all sweet. Mm-hmm. That they're all going to be this like uber right. super fruity. You know, you might not necessarily put your finger on, hey, this is sugary, but that big fruity jamminess to them is definitely something with a little bit of sweetness. The last wine myth we want to talk about is cult wines are hard to find. And Kim, you talk about this a lot that you can Google search these hard to find wines and find it on Google, but that doesn't mean you're going to walk down the street and buy it. Right. Find, being able to find it, especially online, uh, is one thing. Being able to actually get your hands on them and or afford them can be another matter entirely. And wine buying over the internet is a lot easier in certain states, and it certainly is not easy to do in Massachusetts. We have a lot of laws in place that don't allow us to purchase from outside retailers and then have them shipped into Massachusetts. We can buy from wineries and other places and have them shipped home to us here. But you can't buy from a store in, say, Ohio and have it shipped to your house. So that does make this whole idea of purchasing cult wines, you know, wines that maybe aren't distributed in our, in our state or are very limited availability. I do feel like some of these things are harder to get your hands on. But if they are available in our state, I think a lot of the time it does come down to more price tag than anything else. Yeah, this is one of those things. They they technically are hard to find, but you can get them some some way at some time. Google is very interesting because <laughs> I, I oftentimes people come to me and say, you know, I Googled it and says you have it. I've never heard of it. So how, how do I, I often wonder how I get associated yeah, how with that products. So, you know, maybe it's because we talk about it or we blog about it, but it's very powerful how it connects you with these products. So you could say, show me this hard to find wine and it could come up saying, yeah, I, they have it here, but chances are that's not right. Wild. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get past episodes of our show, please find us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.